Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November edition of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. We're in the final stretch of 2022, so any New Year's resolutions you made back in January, well, the clock is ticking. Now, I hope you enjoyed last month's special Halloween edition of the podcast. And if you missed it, go have a listen. It is frightfully good. Sorry, couldn't resist that. So let's start off with a look back in aviation history to November 29th, 1945. It was a dark and stormy night. I've been waiting three years to open a segment with a classic line like that. Let me relish this for a second, okay? It was a dark and stormy night. Off the Connecticut coast, an oil barge broke loose of its moorings and drifted onto Penfield Reef. Now the storm was breaking the barge apart and the two crewmen aboard were in danger. On shore, witnesses had seen flares fired by the crew during the night, but with the stormy conditions, they really couldn't affect any kind of rescue. So, the local police called the nearby Sikorsky Aircraft Corporation factory where these new helicopters were being built for the U.S. Army, and they asked if they could do anything. Sikorsky's chief test pilot, Dmitry Jimmy Viner, nephew of Igor Sikorsky, oh, by the way, and the U.S. Army representative at the factory, Captain Jackson Beagle, took an available helicopter, flew to the scene. Now, Viner was not able to land the helicopter on the barge, so they returned to the factory where a new Army YR-5A had recently been equipped with something called an external rescue hoist. That aircraft was quickly prepared for flight, which actually involved reinstalling one of its main rotor blades, and then Viner and Beagle flew back to the barge. While Viner hovered in the high winds, Beagle operated the rescue hoist, lowering it to the barge where Seaman Penninger looped a leather harness under his arms, Beagle then raised the harness with Penninger to the cabin, but couldn't pull him inside. So Penninger hung on to Beagle while Viner flew the helicopter back to the beach. After they lowered Penninger to the beach, Viner took the R-5 back to the barge to pick up Captain Polwick. When Beagle attempted to raise the hoist, guess what? It jammed, leaving Pollock suspended 30 feet below the helicopter. Viner again returned to the shore and carefully lowered Pollock back to the sand. The United States Coast Guard actually had demonstrated the use of the rescue hoist a few months earlier, but this was the first time it had been used during an actual emergency rescue. And as we all know, it surely would not be the last. So here's something to think about, and maybe a good discussion point to talk about amongst your groups. Imagine it's not 1945, it's 2022, and you are working at your test site, and a call comes in like the one that came into Sikorsky that day. Would it play out the same way? Okay, discuss. Now, many of you have seen the news reports of the mid-air collision that occurred during an air show in Dallas Executive Airport a few weeks ago. Our thoughts and prayers go out to those families affected by that tragedy. We actually talk about air show flying or demonstration flying quite a bit in our flight test world. In fact, we have some great resources on our website on this topic. Why? Because it's a risky endeavor that requires thought, requires planning, and requires practice. You can check out those resources at www.flighttestsafety.org. In our focus segment today, we will hear from someone who has been doing air shows in vintage, and I mean really vintage aircraft, for quite some time. I had the pleasure of meeting our guest last month in London and was very happy when he agreed to be interviewed for the podcast. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, I have the great pleasure today to have as my guest on the podcast, Mr. Roger Bailey, also known as Dodge. Uh, I had a chance to meet him a few weeks ago while we were at the European Flight Test Safety Workshop on our tour day of the Shuttleworth Collection. So, Dodge, thank you for being with us today. I wonder if you could just start off by describing a little bit about your 
aviation background, how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, sure thing. I um, I joined the uh, British Royal Air Force um, straight from school without going to uh, college. Uh, at 17 and a half, I signed up as a cadet pilot and they started to teach me to fly. Um, and uh, I went through that system in uh, uh, early 70s and ended up flying C-130s for 10 years. I then qualified as a flying instructor and was a flying instructor at a unit called a University Air Squadron, which is where we teach university undergraduates how to fly as a way of encouraging them to join the Air Force. I did that for three years. And then um, I had been interested in test pilot school, but everybody said, no, no, they'll never take you, you know. And, uh, and, I, and I applied um, and, um, and miraculously got in. And then I had a phone call the following Monday saying, oh, by the way, you'll be doing it at Edwards. Um, so um, I uh, took my family across to California and spent 1986 at Edwards on uh, uh, the course 86A um, with uh, uh, JB Brown and uh, Jeff Canclini and uh, a bunch of other uh, chaps that kept me honest. <clears throat> uh, and it was a fantastic experience. It was very hard work, but it was um, fantastic experience. When I came back, I joined um, what's called the what was called then the Royal Aircraft Establishment, which was mainly at Farnborough, but had a, a satellite base at Bedford, uh, which is not far from Shuttleworth, Old Warden. And uh, so I became a test pilot there. The lovely thing about Bedford is you didn't specialize like you do at the other test centers and you know the fighter pilots fly fighters and the transport pilots fly transports and never the twain shall meet. At Bedford, we all had to do everything. So I ended up flying uh, heavy aeroplanes and fast jet aeroplanes, and in fact, helicopters later as well. The projects there were um, uh, a civil avionics program. This is pre-GPS, of course. So uh, uh, they were still trying to figure out how to navigate accurately with, you know, before GPS had come along. Right. That was based on, based on a um, BAC-111, a bit like a DC-9. We were doing 4D navigation. So, you know, accurate 3D plus time. Um, and we were using what's called a verse style autopilot. So in-flight programmed autopilot. I had to do all the uh, hard over testing for that as part of that program. Um, we also had a twin turboprop, a thing called an Andover. And we were looking at military systems in that, including manually flown Cat 3 landings in fog using a mono HUD, just a one-eyed HUD. Uh, which was quite fun. Um, and then in the tornado and the fast jet side, various systems we were looking at, did some captive carry trials and you know, stability control with a, a new thing underneath, um, terrain following radar <coughs> um, and manual cat three, sorry, cat two in the tornado, manual cat two fog flying um, using modified HUD symbology. So that was a real mix of stuff and in amongst that there was a bit of hawk flying and helicopter flying as well. Um, and then I, I left the Air Force at that point and joined what was then called the College of Aeronautics at Cranfield, it's now called Cranfield University, joined them as chief test pilot um, and um, I sort of worked for two bosses, one was the, the head of the college where we, which was a university, postgraduate university, where 
we trained uh, aeronautical engineers, and my job was to give them some flight test experience in our flying laboratory airplanes. So they would get a course of maybe eight flights where we'd look at pressure errors and performance and static stability and dynamic stability and stalling and stuff. And they would take readings in the back and draw graphs, and then we'd debrief it all a bit like a you know, a mini test pilot school in, <clears throat> in, in just a few trips. Um, and the other part of the job was uh, the chief test pilot for the chief designer of the organization that actually modified airplanes there. Um, so part of the design team. Um, and that organization got contracts to um, modify airplanes, usually for military purposes, um, civil airplanes, but for military purposes. So we carry funny things underneath or extend the nose to put a radar in. And of course they all needed stability control type um, clearances. Uh, and that sort of potted on for 20 years. I, um, I became a Shuttleworth volunteer pilot about the same time as I left the Air Force. Uh, so that's 1989, 90. And uh, still there, still flying. The Shuttleworth collection is a charitable trust set up to remember a guy called Richard Shuttleworth, who was killed in Royal Air Force flying training in 1940. Um, and it's now a collection of over 40 aeroplanes that are all airworthy. Um, and they date from 1909, Blario from 1909 up to um, just post-war. So 1954 is probably the most modern aeroplane we have. Something like the Chipmunk and the Piston Promise, which are just post-war. But everything else is either pre-World War One, World War One, the interwar years, or early World War Two, really. And uh, we display those aeroplanes every two weeks throughout the summer. And, and we, as a bunch of volunteer pilots, about 18 at the current um, time. So that's uh, that's the the Shuttleworth collection. Yeah, and I would say you know I've had the opportunity to visit a lot of airplane museums in my time, but the most fascinating thing I think I took away from our morning with you at Shuttleworth Collection was, you know, that's, you know, four to five decades worth of airplanes you have there. Um, just the, just looking at how technology changed in that time frame, just by looking at the different design changes, configuration changes of the aircraft was, was fascinating. And obviously some of those were purpose built for certain sort of missions, but it was just fascinating to kind of see that history unfold there as you walk through different hangars. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you can see pre-World War One, they didn't know what good looked like. So there are, various, there are various solutions for flight. Some worked well and some didn't, and that gradually gets better over time. Right. Okay, so we, we normally think of test pilots as flying the newest aircraft and the latest technology, but, but you have an interesting challenge there is you have to take test pilots and put them in the oldest aircraft and old technology. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that? Yeah. we. Um, we, like I said, we had a, uh, a group of about 18 pilots. The, I would say probably 70% are qualified test pilots from either still serving in the military or ex-military, um, and the rest civilian um, pilots with no <clears throat> test flying um, background. Uh, the test pilots are useful for all, all sorts of reasons. I mean, we're, we're kind of used to flying 
different aeroplanes on different days. And um, if there's a project that needs um, sorting out, like um, an extension of a CG range, for example, or uh, something of that sort, then you know the test pilot should have the tools to do that. You know, in his toolbox. So um, that's why test pilots are useful in the collection, really. Uh, but what we do, and we're looking for a test pilot, ideally, or a new pilot for us anyway, to join us at 40 to 50 years old, something in that in that decade, that will give us 20 or 30 years out of him. Uh, and it will take 15 or to 20 years before he's flown most of the aeroplanes there. And some guys may never fly all of them because they're, they're odd qualification, like a you know multi-engine piston or something, which they don't have on their license. But Okay. Uh, most most pilots, um, certainly most uh, guys that have been there for that period of time, can expect to move onto the, the complex airplanes like the, the Spitfire, um, you know, after 15, 20 years. Um, and so we're looking for pilots that sort of age. We're looking for pilots that have got nothing left to prove. You know, they've they've made their career. They don't need to demonstrate how good they are. And we don't want them to demonstrate how good they are. We want them to just gently demonstrate these priceless aeroplanes. Uh, so we just need them to be you know, sensible and take direction, which is quite important, and uh, comply with our way of doing business and not try and do their own thing. You know, we, we, we've got a, a well-proven system and we're very happy to listen to input, but basically we, you know, this, we've got a, a well-proven way of doing business. So that's, that's sort of the guys we're looking for and when I when I joined, it was a bit like an old gentleman's club. If you asked to join, you would be excluded for life. <laughs> <laughs> you had to wait to get a tap on the shoulder from somebody. Um, and uh, it's a little better now. We do actually now, um, you know, put out feelers and uh, and interview folks, um, uh, although we're not recruiting at the moment. And then the the problem we have is we have forty aeroplanes and. 18 pilots and that's a hell of a training matrix sure and, and it's an impossible training matrix you know if you wanted all 20 pilots to be qualified in all 40 types and that would be a dumb thing to do because you could never keep anybody current on anything so we have to come up with a, a system where the new guys are operating their comfort zone the experienced guys are operating their comfort zone and there's a sort of steady progression from the uh, first easy aeroplanes to the more complex one. We do that by basically grouping the aeroplanes um, into similar levels of complexity, um, either technical complexity or handling complexity. And so the first group are simple trainers like the, the basically the de Havilland Moth series, the Chipmunk uh, and aeroplanes of that ilk. And what they have in common is the engine will work. Right? So, it's a it's a very reliable engine uh, it responds to throttle normally and the pilot won't need to worry about the engine he can concentrate on learning the new techniques of flying airplanes that he won't have come across before they're all tail draggers they're um, most of them biplanes most don't have flaps so you have to learn how to side slip into land you may have never done that before in your whole career um, you um, need to sort of build up that experience of dealing with airplanes that um, are more affected by the wind than you're used to and uh, and have various um, 
deficiencies and they get worse the further you go on really um, uh, and, and it's a silly thing but it and it took me 10 years to figure this out but a lot of these early airplanes they don't have brakes which you say okay they don't have brakes they, they have a tail skid that slows them down that's fine but if you have an airplane with good directional stability and you have no means of steering it on the ground you can't even taxi out to the end of the runway because every time you move you just get weathercocked into wind and so what what they had to do was take the directional static stability out of the airplanes and give you lots of directional control so these airplanes generally if you look at them they have a tiny little fin and a huge rudder that enables you to taxi across wind and, and get to the beginning of the, the runway um, and then you take off and then for the rest of the flight you're flying a directionally unstable airplane and if, if you take your feet off the floor they'll just sidestep one way or the other to the full limit of the rudder which might be 30 40 degrees of sidestep it's not not sustainable so you are the directional stabilizer so the the price you pay for taxing without brakes is you become the stabilizer for the rest of the trip always a trade-off right <laughs> and, that, and that's kind of new um for, for most folks and so after they've They've done a few years in that first group. There's a second group, which is similar airplanes, but different engines. They're mostly uh, round, you know, um, uh, radial engines. And then there's a, another group with a couple of uh, 1930s airplanes, which have particularly odd lateral directional characteristics. And we like the guys to fly one or both of those before they fly the World War I airplanes. Um, because it's, you need to get used to using your feet in a big way in these airplanes. Back in the 20s and 30s, you know, turns were initiated on the rudder, certainly on most British airplanes. And the ailerons were sort of, uh, well, they're just for balancing stuff up, you know, but you, you start and finish turns on the rudder. Um, and the airplanes are sort of built with that in mind. Um, so if you were to keep the rudder in the middle and just use aileron to roll into the turn, you get lots of adverse yaw. Um, so you can do that, but you need to use the rudder appropriately to, to stop the adverse yaw. So they've got to learn all that. And then after those flying one of those um, uh, interesting lateral directional airplanes, that's the the Havilland 51 and the Parnell Elf one-offs, really. Um, they then get to fly things like the Bristol Fighter and the SC5, which are World War One warplanes with good engines, good stationary V engines that behave properly. And uh, they'll then move on to um, um, the interwar aeroplanes like the Hawker Hind series and the Lysander and so on. Um, some pilots will get to fly the World War I rotary engine aeroplanes, but not all, because the more pilots you have flying the challenging ones, the less time they get on the aeroplanes and the less comfortable you feel. So you kind of restrict the more challenging aeroplanes to two or three pilots at a time. So you can, the pilots will fly the aeroplanes, you know, more. Right. if if everyone was flying the with Camel, you get to fly it once every two years, it would be a nightmare. <laughs> and so you've got that World War II series then with the Lysander and the Gladiator, Hurricane Spitfire. Some will then do the rotaries as well. Uh, and some will do um, the twin engine Comet, if they've got that sort of rating, um, or the Mugol, which is a 1930s racer, which has handling qualities, you know, they're more challenging than the Spitfire. And then the last group are the Edwardian airplanes, what you would call pioneers, maybe they're the airplanes before World War One, and uh, they're all different. 
um, that the guys need to have got lots of tools in their toolbox before they get to that stage uh, and they need the, the sort of intellectual discipline to look at the airplane and say okay for this airplane um, is going to it's going to be unstable it's going to pitch up if I close the throttle because it's got a lifting tail um, it's got no fin so I need to use the rudder to make sure the rudder works as a fin by keeping it near the middle um, it's got no dihedral so I know that there's no point using the rudder to roll the airplane I'll just need to use the lateral control system whether it's ailerons or wing walking and you have to be quite rigorous about that uh, and sort of brief yourself before you fly those things. This one is a stick in the middle, only use the rudder aeroplane, whereas this one is a rudder in the middle, only use the stick aeroplane. So they sort of come into two classes. Um, and that, that's the sort of final, final stage. Um, there are a couple of those that are slightly easier than the others, and the guys will, might fly those fairly early on, you know, after maybe 10 or 15 years, but they probably won't fly the most challenging ones until a bit later on because they need to build experience in those weird handling ones from, you know, the 1910 era. We'll pick up this conversation with Dodge Bailey next month and learn more about flying and testing those vintage aircraft in the Shuttleworth collection. Now, be on the lookout in a few days for our final flight test safety fact newsletter for 2022. Our editor, Mark Jones, has the printing press running at full speed. Well, not literally, but figuratively, I guess. Well, whatever it is we do in the digital age, he's doing it, so be on the lookout. And as always, we welcome your feedback and ideas for future episodes and editions. Our contact info is in the podcast description, so please let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear about or read about. And until next time, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.